Hi and welcome to Steve Wraith's True Crime Podcast and today I'm proud to be joined by Richard Jones who is a Jack the Ripper expert. He has written many books and produced many books on the subject including uh, Jack the Ripper, uh, the case scrapbook. We've also got this one, the Jack the Ripper's London book and we've got the latest book which is called Jack the Ripper's East End, which is Edgar's Walking Guide. They're all available on Amazon. You can buy them on there. Um, and if you want to find out more, uh, you can also jump on a website called jacktheripper.org. Uh, Richard's on there. He's the site author. Some interesting facts on there if it's a subject that you've never actually explored. Richard, welcome to the show. Um, I'm looking Good for evening. you to educate me on, on Jack the Ripper. Jamie Boyle. Uh, put you in my direction. Uh, I know he's got a fascination. Mine, I think, as I told you off air, is about the Cray twins. Um, they're from the same neck, from the same neck of the woods. Same neck of the woods. Uh, in fact, in some cases, even the very same streets. Uh, it, that just separated by a, a few decades. Yeah. It's, it's, what, what got you interested in Jack the Ripper? To, to be honest, it, uh, I, I wasn't really interested in Jack the Ripper at first because I, I think I thought what a lot of people think, and that's that it's all, it's all about murder, mutilation, which didn't really interest me. But uh, then what I learned was that uh, I, it, I, one of my passions is Charles Dickens and Dickens's London. And I was exploring Dickens's London. And Dickens wrote an awful lot about Whitechapel. And so as you start to delve into Whitechapel, th there's no way around it. You come across the Jack the Ripper story. And it suddenly dawned on me that, it wasn't just about murder and mayhem and gory stuff. There's a lot of beneath the surface stuff going on as well. There's the social history, there's the newspapers, there's the police coming under constant criticism for, uh, or for, for various reasons. Uh, and it just sort of focuses on this 12 weeks or so in 1888, when the eyes of the world began focusing on a very small part of London. But in so doing, they made that part of London infamous and it became... I was saying infamous, but also notorious throughout the world. And it was that that fascinated me, the, the way that you've got this story. But just beneath the story, there's thousands and thousands of other stories of everyday lives of people involved in it. Police, people who lived in the area, people who were dragged into it. And one thing I'm fascinated by is the number of people who went mad as a result of Jack the Ripper, who were, who were so, so terrified by what was happening. We have people committing suicide, people being, um, we have a few people who end up in asylums because they are so scared of Jack the Ripper. It's crazy, really, when you look back on it. And, and, and it's clearly, you know, stood the test of time. Um, take us back to the mid 19th century. Paint a picture of, of East End London in those times. The East, East End in the 19th century, it, 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 it wasn't as bad as it's been painted. Uh, the East End did have bad bits. Uh, it had a lot of it, but it also had some quite well-off bits as well. I think it was Canon Samuel Barnett, who was a, a local vicar, but he was also a local philanthropist as well. And he ran Toynbee Hall. And at the height of the Ripper scandal, he actually wrote to a newspaper. And he said, look, he said, uh, the, these murders, you know, they are drawing attention to the area. Parts of the West uh, East End are far more respectable than the West End, where you've got all this debauchery because of wealth. But here you've got people who are working hard, people who are trying to make ends meet and doing things. So it basically had this reputa reputation for vice and villainy because of a little area around Commercial Street. And that was the area of Flarendine Street, Thrall Street, George Street. Just, so it's between Brick Lane and Commercial Street. And that's where you had the common lodging houses. And those streets were known as the blackest of the black streets. And of some of them, the police wouldn't go down them uh, if they were alone. They, they were so terrified to go down them. Uh, so they had this terrible reputation for vice and villainy. Uh, and virtually all Jack the Ripper's victims lodged in that area. They came out of that area and were murdered around that area. And that's what started to focus people's attention on it. And the area from quite a few decades before Jack the Ripper had been reported on as an area of ne'er-do-wells, of, of a criminal underworld that was living around there, uh, and of an uncivilised society. It's interesting to read how people talk about the East End, or the, people talked about the East End then, and particularly those parts around Commercial Street, as, uh, as if uh, we talk about 
going to the third world today. People were people actually went on slum tours to go and look at us to actually see it's a bit bit like a David Attenborough documentary. They'd go and see the poor in their natural habitat. So they'd go around in omnibuses and then they'd come back and they'd be able to tell people, Oh, I saw this, I saw, I saw these poor people today. Uh, and it, because of all that, and because the East End, uh, the newspapers were able to report on it, it gave the East End this reputation. And it's almost by design that Jack the Ripper chose that area in which to carry out the murders. And that made the area, in the eyes of Londoners, but in the eyes of the world eventually, it made it an area nothing good come out, can come out of. And Jack the Ripper, in a way, became the personification of all these horrible things that people thought the East End were, were was. Sorry. Okay, so tell us who the first victim was. And, I, and I've done a little bit of reading on this, but there's... There's something which which really surprised me because I'm a casual observer of Jack the Ripper. I knew who it was, but there's 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 reference to the the Canical Five. But there was yeah. apparently people who could have been or were alleged to have been murdered by Jack the Ripper prior to that. So take us through, yeah. you know, the in order. Yeah, there's there's no the, the big thing about Jack the Ripper is nothing is certain because we don't know who Jack the Ripper was. Jack the Ripper was never caught, and if we don't know who Jack the Ripper was, we can't say how many victims he had. It's generally agreed there were five victims, but the Whitechapel murders file, which has all the murders on it, has 11 victims on it. So the first victim was Emma Elizabeth Smith, who was murdered on Easter Tuesday, 1888. And Emma Smith was, uh, she, she, she was probably attacked by a gang. Uh, there were gangs in the area, just as there were in the craze day. Uh, there were gangs in the area at the time. And these gangs were criminal gangs, a lot of them ran extortion rackets, and it was quite common for some of the rough gangs of young men to victimise prostitutes and threaten to and attack them and make and rob them of all their money. And it would seem that Emma Smith was attacked by one of these gangs. We know this because she survived the attack, and she actually went to the hospital uh, where she died. In, she died in hospital, but before she died, she told the doctor, Doctor Haslip, she'd been attacked by a, a group of youths the youngest of which was aged about 18. So she was probably a victim of one of the high rip gangs in the area. Now, it went very quiet after her murder. There was an initial repulsion that somebody could be attacked in such a vicious and horrible way. And it was a vicious attack. Uh, there's no doubt about it. But then it went, it went quiet until the 7th of August. And that's when a lady called Martha Tabram was murdered in George Yard. And that was just off um, Whitechapel High Street. And, and she was uh, well, she was stabbed 39 times. So her throat wasn't cut and she wasn't disemboweled, but she was stabbed 39 times. A lot of people debate over whether she was the first victim of Jack the Ripper. Uh, many people say she wasn't because the injuries weren't consistent. But uh, some people say, well, Jack the Ripper wouldn't have just come bounding into the East End with his modus operandi intact. Uh, so maybe this was a learning curve for him because whoever committed that murder would have been covered in blood. And that might be why he evolved a method of killing whereby he, he he asphyxiated or strangled his victims first so the heart would stop beating when he commenced the mutilation so there wouldn't be arterial spurt or blood spatter that you would get if the heart was still beating. So Martha Tabram, George Yard, Whitechapel High Street. Then we come to the one that's, uh, you're looking, uh, that we're looking at now, and that's Mary Nichols. And she was murdered on August 30, 31st, 1888. She is generally held to be the first victim of Jack the Ripper. So she's the third Whitechapel murder victim, but she's generally held to be the first victim of Jack the Ripper. And uh, again, she was discovered by a carman on his, on his way to work, a man named Charles Cross. He, well, he saw something lying in a gateway. He thought it was a, a tarpaulin and he was a carman or a, a, a delivery driver by trade. So he thought that might make a useful cover for his wagon. He went to look at it. And he discovered the body of Mary Nichols. Uh, strangely, the, the, it, that's that's literally just the murder sites behind the blind beggar. So, uh, so you've got a, almost a, and the the grave Maurice as well. So you've got crazy. Of course, we're notorious crazy pubs. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so you've got two of those, and they, they're literally. Uh, if you if you go past, there's a board school there still. If you go past that, there's a narrow alleyway called Woods Buildings. Uh, which you can't get through anymore, but you used to be able to walk through it. And you're out on Whitechapel High Street. To your right is the Grave Maurice. To your left is the Blind Beggar. Uh, so, you know, you're, 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 you're East End Territory. So Mary Nichols. Then a week later, you get the murder of Annie Chapman. And that was the 8th of September, 1888. The, um, 
in advance, Mary Nichols had a throat cut and she was disemboweled as well. Annie Chapman had a throat cut, she was disemboweled, but this time the killer took away a trophy. He went off with a womb, so he cut the womb out and went off with Annie Chapman's womb. And um, so she was the 8th of September. Then the police increased the presence in the area. They put more police in the area, not so much to try and catch the killer, but there was a lot of anti-Jewish unrest in the area as a result of the murders because there'd been a great deal of Jewish immigration into the East End in the 1880s and a lot of people now thought well this is a new kind of murder so, and they did what people always do they blame the immigrants they said well it's got to be it's got to be one of the immigrants so constant consequently the police try wanted to contain all this anti-semitism and stop the, the, I mean one stage there was anti-Jewish rioting in the area the police tried to contain it uh, and they did it by flooding police into the area that seems to have had an effect on the murderer because in the the rest of September went by with any, without any more murders and people began to calm down. But then on the 30th of September, it's called the night of the double murder. And that's when Elizabeth Stride was murdered in Burner Street, which is off Commercial Road. And uh, Catherine Eddowes was then murdered in Mitre Square. Elizabeth Stride, who we're looking at, uh, we were looking at there. Elizabeth Stride, she's the one on the left. Uh, we, uh, honest truth is we don't, we we don't know for certain, or we don't know whether these, the, the photographs of them alive are internet creations. They're, they're not actual photographs of the victims uh, as such. Uh, we've got one of Annie Chapman, her wedding photograph, but the other ones are just ones that people have put on the internet and said, oh, that's, that's her, that's her, that's her. Uh, but Elizabeth Stride, you can actually see it in the photograph on, on the left there. You can see the cut to her throat. She had a throat cut but she wasn't mutilated. And that led the police to believe that the killer had been interrupted as he went about the killing. Uh, he was actually interrupted by a man called Louis Diebschutz who came into the yard, probably as he was killing Elizabeth Stride. And that meant he didn't commit the mutilations. So the killer then headed to Mitre Square and it was in Mitre Square, he killed Catherine Eddowes. And this is a complete escalation with Catherine Eddowes. He cut the throat, he cut her open, he cut deep V's into the cheeks, deep V's, in, V's into the eyelids, nicked through the ears, cut off the ears, or cut off one earlobe, or cut through one earlobe. He then plunged his hands in, ripped out the intestines, and went off with the uterus and the left kidney. So he wow. took the kidney away from that body. And then there's a massive gap. The whole of October went by and there were no further killings. Uh, so the whole of October goes by, no murders. What did happen in October significantly, though, is the police released a letter which they'd received at the end of September. And that's the infamous Dear Boss letter. Uh, oh, that, 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 that that's a different one, October. is it? Yeah, that's a different one. That's that's, okay. the, that's the From Hell letter. So the Dear Boss letter is the one that was signed Jack the Ripper. And it was that signature, when that was released, that gave him the name. And as consequently, a consequence of that name, it really caught on. And it got reported now all over the world. He became known as Jack the Ripper. Uh, the letter that you've just shown, the From Hell letter, remember I said that he'd taken the kidney away from Catherine Eddowes' body. Well, they, as well as the police, you had what were known as vigilance patrols in the area. And the president of the Mile End Vigilance Committee was a man called Mr. George Lusk. And he received a letter on the 16th of October, which was addressed from hell. And you can see there, Mr. Lusk, sir, I send you half a kidney. Wrapped inside that letter was half a human kidney. And there's a great deal of debate because the letter's suggesting it's the kidney he took from Catherine Eddowes' body. Uh, letters, uh, there's a great deal of debate there as to whether or not it was. Some people, in fact, quite a few people now think this is the only genuine letter that was sent. Uh, we've mentioned two, but there were thousands of letters being sent at the time. Many signed Jack the Ripper. Everybody wanted to send Jack the Ripper letters. This is one of the very few that people think actually did come from the killer. Even the Dear Boss letter probably didn't come from the killer. Uh, so that's all going on in October. So it keeps the story going throughout October. But I've got the no other letter for you, Richard. So that, that's the oh, Dear yeah, Boss that's letter. The, one, the Dear Boss letter. That's the one. Yeah, Dear Boss, keep on hearing the police have caught me. And, and it goes. And then on the, uh, the side of it, or the other side, there's the signature, Jack the Ripper. And uh, so basically this, this, this is what's happening. November comes in. People are starting to calm down again. And then on the 9th of November, Mary Kelly was murdered in her room. And she was murdered indoors. She's the only one who was murdered indoors. 13 Millers Court. 
and her throat was cut. Uh, she'd been stabbed, but she was completely torn apart. Uh, the body was quite literally skinned down to the bone. Uh, and that, that photograph is, that's the only one of the victims that was uh, photographed at the scene of the crime. It's believed to be one of the very earliest, if not the earliest, crime scene photograph of a murder victim. And, looking and that's horrific, see, Richard. That really is horrific. It's horrible. I mean, it, it, it is terrible. I mean, it, it's, and you get the idea, you really see what was going on, what, why this had such an impact on people. Uh, but she's believed to have been the last victim of Jack the Ripper. And then you get several more Whitechapel murders. You get Rose Milet is murdered in December 1888, Alice McKenzie in July 1889, uh, someone who was never identified, but is just known as the Pynchon Street Torso in September 1889, was found under a railway arch in, in Pynchon Street, uh, again, just a few streets from Berner Street, where Elizabeth Stride was murdered. And then uh, 13th of February uh, 1891, the murder of Francis Coles. And she's the last name on the Whitechapel murders file. Uh, people don't tend to think that those last ones, the ones after Mary Kelly, were Jack the Ripper victims. As I say, though, we can't be certain because we don't know who Jack the Ripper is. <laughs> and in yeah. a nutshell, that's that's the Jack the Ripper story. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 an amazing story, and and it's something which obviously, is, as I say, has has deep fascination with people, and I think. A lot of the fascination is simply down to the fact that, as you say, he's never really been identified. So who was in the frame, Richard, for being the river? At the time, everybody and nobody. Uh, they, the police the police were arresting people on an almost weekly basis. Very early on in the investigation, just after the murder of Mary Nichols, it's uh, found, that, or the press found out, the police were looking for a, a character called Leather Apron who apparently had been threatening prostitutes uh, in the around uh, Brick Lane, uh, Thrall Street, Commercial Street. And uh, one of the one of the police officers, the wonderfully named Sergeant William Thick, uh, said, well, I, I know who Leather Apron is. It's uh, it's John Pizer. So they arrest. Eventually, they arrested John Pizer two days after the murder of Annie Chapman. Uh, he had cast iron alibis for the nights of the two most recent murders. Uh, so he was quickly ruled out as a suspect. But then they were pulling people in almost daily. Uh, a lot of people were saying, ah, oh, yeah, I know it is. It's him down the road. So the police, oh, yeah, we'll get him, pull him in. It, they were able to account for themselves. So it's true to say at the time the police had, the police had suspects. Uh, they had people they arrested. But every time they arrested them, uh, a very promising one was a chap called Charles Ludwig, who, uh, or Ludwig, to give him, he was arrested in, sept in September 1888, uh, what had happened was that uh, uh, a policeman was on his patrol down Minories, which is a, the street that goes from Allgate down to the Tower of London. And he was passing a notorious uh, court, uh, it's a dark court that led to some railway arches. And he heard a scream. So he ran down the, into the railway arches and he found a man and a woman standing there. The woman was obviously a prostitute. And the woman said, oh, policeman, do take me out of this. Uh, so... The policeman said to the man, what are you doing? He said, nothing. He said, uh, so he sent the man on his way. And the woman said, oh, she said, ah, and she couldn't speak. She was so terrified. So he escorted her down the street and they got back to Allgate High Street. And she said to him, she said to the policeman, oh, he did give me such a scare when he pulled out that big knife. <laughs> and of course, he'd sent him on his way. So his jaw must have hit the floor because he thought he'd had the killer and let him go. Uh, as it turned out, the man went down to a coffee stall on uh, Whitechapel High Street, uh, coffee stall, sorry, and uh, he tried to attack a young man with, an, with his knife and he was arrested. As it turned out it was a German called Charles Ludwig and he seemed a very promising suspect, but he was in police custody when the 30th of September happened and the night of the double murder. So effectively he was ruled out as a result of that. So this kept happening. They kept pulling people. We know they had suspects. The problem is that we don't have the evidence anymore. The files have gone missing. We don't have the files. They've either been destroyed or gone missing. So we don't know uh, who they suspected at the time. But it's since then that lots of suspects have come forward. Uh, one that has come forward that seems to have been the police's favoured suspect was a man called Aaron Kosminski. Now, Kosminski was the favoured suspect of Dr. Robert Anderson. Robert Anderson was the assistant commissioner of the Metropolitan Police. And he was also the head of the criminal investigation department, the CID. And in his memoirs, he he said that, uh, well, effectively, he said that 
we we knew who Jack the Ripper was. He says undiscovered murders are rare in London, and the crimes known as the Jack the Ripper murders do not fall into that category. Uh, and then he goes on to say that it was a low-born Polish Jew living in the heart of the area. And uh, he also says that when the one person who was uh, who ever got a good view of the face of the murderer was confronted with our suspect, he unhesitatingly identified the suspect as the man he'd seen. So. Anderson doesn't name him. He just says he was a Polish Jew and there was a witness identification. Now, Anderson, a copy of Anderson's memoirs went to Chief Inspector Swanson, who was the man in early September. He was given the job of assessing all the information on the case. Every bit of information went through Donald Sutherland Swanson. Uh, so he had the big picture. And his copy of Anderson's memoirs came back into the public domain in 1988. And in the margin of the book, he has scrawled the name Kosminski. And he says there was a witness identification, but he says the witness wouldn't testify because the witness was Jewish and he wouldn't testify against one of his own kind. So the police then released the suspect into the care of his brother, kept him under surveillance. And shortly after, he goes to the Colney, so the County Lynch Asylum at Colney Hatch. And there's only one Kosminski in the asylum records who fits that bill. And this is Aaron Kosminski. He was certainly in the air at the time. He was the leading suspect of the two highest ranking officers, Swanson and Anderson, uh, or so, well, we think he was anyway. Uh, so consequently, uh, he would seem to be the really up there on the list of who Jack the Ripper was. The problem for us, as I've said before, is the evidence has disappeared. So we haven't got their evidence. And without it, we can't say for certain that he was Jack the Ripper. History obviously tends to paint things in a different picture. And the thing that I often you know, remember being pointed in the direction of us that the victims were all prostitutes. Is that true? <laughs> it's a, uh, it's a can of worms today. Uh, there's a book, there's a book that's come out called the five, which says that uh, it's, it's misogynistic to say they were all prostitutes. They weren't, they were sleeping. They were women who were working hard. It's all got to all the evidence suggests they were. Now, by prostitutes, that they weren't prostitutes in the sense that they weren't sex workers. Uh, they were women who were living on the breadline and they did what they had to do to survive. Mary Nichols, for example, the first victim, she needed fourpence to pay for a bed in the lodging house. She didn't have it. So she was evicted from the lodging house uh, around about midnight on the 31st of all, or 30th to the 31st of August. She had a bonnet. And she obviously, she, she, she said to the lodging housekeeper as she left, I'll still get the DOS money, see what a jolly bonnet I'm wearing. Now, why would she think the bonnet would get her some DOS money? <laughs> uh, she obviously thought it would be an irresistible allure. And we do know that she met with a friend of hers at 2.30 in the morning on the 31st, a lady called uh, Emily Holland. And she boasted to her she'd made the lodging money several times over, but had spent it on drink. And she was now going to go out and make it one last time. Now, that's there emphatically that she was going to make money at 2.30 in the morning. It's there in Emily Holland's inquest statements. How was she going to make money at 2.30 in the morning? How had she made the money? Uh, they were probably ca casual prostitutes. And I, personally, I don't like the term prostitute to describe them because they were surviving. They were, they were survivors. And I much prefer the Victorian term for them, which was unfortunates. And I think that really does sum up the fact that they'd fallen through the net. There was nothing there to catch them. But there's a great, a huge amount of debate now saying that, oh, no, they weren't prostitutes and it's misogynistic to say that they were. And uh, But I have to say, the evidence all suggests, uh, reading the evidence, the evidence suggests that they were. And the other thing about it, of course, is that uh, they, were survive they were trying to survive. So... To actually say, well, yeah, they they were just sleeping. They don't. I think that does them a disservice as well. I, I really think it, uh, you know, it, it it does no favors to their memory. And the other thing, of course, is that uh, it, it focuses on the five victims. Uh, that, that 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 thinking does. Uh, there's eleven victims on the murders file. So what they're saying there is, well, if you weren't murdered by Jack the Ripper, your death doesn't count. <laughs> Uh, so it's just one of those things that I just find uh, it, it, it's, it's, there's a great tendency to do this today, and that's rewriting history. Uh, history is there. It's there to be read. The problem is that people don't read history. They read assessments of history. 
And so whoever's assessing the history is the one they believe. And nowadays, there's no gray area anymore. There's, there's either you're there, you're on this side, or you're on this side. There's no, well, I'm sort of in between. Royal Scandal is something that we've become accustomed to. Um, there is two royal links that I've managed to find. Obviously, the most obvious one is Prince Albert, um, known to Eddie as his friends. Um, yes. Suggestions that he could have been the Ripper. I found that fascinating. That's been around... Uh, <laughs> Eddie, Eddie's been in the frame since the 1960s. Uh, it was a criminologist called Thomas Stowell who, uh, who was told, I think he told Colin Wilson that uh, uh, basically there's two, there's two stories to do with Eddie. Either he's the murderer himself. Uh, that's one, one of the stories. The other story is that he married a Catholic girl called Anne Elizabeth Crook. Uh, he'd had a child by her and, uh, and then she, the, the child had been... The family had been broken up. This is the subject of the Michael Caine film, and it's the subject of the From Hell film with Johnny Depp, that the child had then been taken away. Uh, Annie Crook had been put into an asylum, so the, the authorities had put her into an asylum to stop her telling what she knew. But the child was smuggled to safety by the servant girl, who then went into the East End and fell in with a gaggle of drunken prostitutes, told them what she knew, and they set about blackmailing the royal family. So the Freemasons were sent out to uh, break the fact, to, to silence them. And of course, the, the servant girl was Mary Kelly, and uh, she's the last victim of Jack the Ripper. So when she dies, there's no, there's no, 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 no need for for any further murders because it's been solved. Uh, Eddie, <laughs> it's an interesting theory. Uh, I mean, Stephen King's book on it, The Final Solution, is the best-selling book that's ever been on Jack the Ripper, a massive seller. Uh, <laughs> whether it's true or not is another matter altogether. I, I can't say 100% that it's not, because as I say, we don't know who Jack the Ripper was, so it's impossible to say whether it's true. We know where Eddie was on the nights of the murders, and he certainly wasn't in London on the nights of the murders. He was, he was uh, Balmoral, Sandring, he's, he's all over the place, but he wasn't in London at the, on, on the nights of the murders. Uh, as for the Masonic theory, it, it's a great theory. People love conspiracy theories. Uh, whether personally personally i don't hold with it i i don't i don't think it was but again as i say i i can't say for certain and i can't i can't say ah that theory is nonsense because other people might say well anyone's theory is nonsense i guess you know he's out of the frame by the sounds of it the other potential royal connection was sir john williams who was queen victoria's surgeon how did he get uh, his name put in the frame? And, and this was a story he in the Daily his, Mail. Yeah, he got his name put into the frame by one of his descendants. Who? Uh, it's amazing how many people want to claim that their great-great-great-grandfather or some, <laughs> someone in their past was Jack the Ripper. Uh, it's amazing how many people want to claim the man. You know, oh, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm, you know. I mean, personally, I, I think I'd, I, I wouldn't want anyone to know that I was descended from Jack the Ripper. But yeah, but he, he, he got, uh, basically, he was a fertility, he was looking into, uh, uh, looking into fertility. He was, uh, and that's, the, the theory is, that's why he took the wombs out of the victims, uh, out of Annie Chapman and uh, uh, Kate Eddowes, uh, because he wanted wombs to experiment on. Again, I, 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 don't, I don't hold, I, I, the evidence just isn't there. Uh, to, to say that it was him, but the evidence isn't there against anybody. Yeah, it's just amazing that the names that, that, that get connected and I guess the, you know, the, the various jobs or, or titles that these that these people actually had. And uh, another one is Montague Druitt, is it, the pronunciation? Montague John another, Druitt, yeah. Yeah, another, another person who, I believe he was an English barrister, um, and, he, and I think that the, the reason he seemed to get blamed was that the murders came to an end when he when he killed himself. Yeah, he, he's, he, he is he is an interesting one. He probably up and, until Kaminsky's name became known, he probably was one of the, the leading suspect for being Jack the Ripper. Uh, Drew, it actually appears uh, there's a thing called the McNaughton Memoranda that was done in 1894 by uh, Chief Well, he was the Assistant Chief Constable of Scotland Yard, Melvin McNaughton. Uh, oh, he, sorry, he, he joined as Assistant Chief Constable in, in June 1889. Now, in 1894, the Sun newspaper began a series, did a, ran a series of articles in February saying they knew who Jack the Ripper was and they'd been to see him in Broadmoor Asylum. And they did, uh, and it's, I think it was from the 14th through to the 17th, they did up these articles every day. We, we're, 
and they didn't name him, but it's obvious they're suggesting that it was a man called Thomas Cutbush. Now, Thomas Cutbush had been in the asylum since, uh, I think, 1891. Thomas Cutbush was the nephew of Superintendent Cutbush at Scotland Yard. Uh, and the son now, although they're not naming him, everything they're saying is pointing to this Thomas Cutbush. Melville McNaughton, therefore, uh, compiled a memorandum uh, saying it, the story's nonsense. You know, we, it, Cutbush wasn't Jack the Ripper. And in that memorandum, he says, and I can give the, I can give the names of three men any one of whom, and this is the important thing he says, he doesn't say they were suspects, he said I can give the names of three men, any one of whom is more likely than Cutbush to have been the killer and uh, and those three men were Kosminski, uh, Michael Ostrog, and the other one was MJ Druitt uh, now he, he actually says in the memorandum that MJ Druitt was a doctor but he wasn't, he was a barrister but he was also moonlighting or working as a teacher as well at a place called Valentine School down in Blackheath, London. Now, Montague John Druitt, in the memorandum, McNaughton says that from private information, he believes that his own family thought he was the Ripper. So he was obviously McNaughton's favoured suspect. And uh, the, the, the thing about Druitt is he committed suicide at the, uh, at the end of 1888. His body washed up on the Thames at Chiswick in, on the last day of the year. And uh, he left a note behind saying he, he felt he was going mad. He couldn't, you know, and it was better he should die. Now, what's interesting about Druitt is that uh, he's convenient. We do know that the police probably had started to think something had happened to the killer after the murder of Mary Nichols. So they were starting to ask the question, what's happened to him? What, what, why have the murders stopped? Why aren't we getting any more murders? And they were probably combing through uh, asylum records to see if he gone into an asylum and also through suicide records as well that McNaughton actually says that it's obvious after such a horrible killing as that of Mary Kelly the killer's mind must have given way uh, and Druitt fits nicely into that uh, so yes yeah, so his name again there's the, the there's little it, the facts contradict the theory about him uh, it McNaughton says his mind gave way after the murder in Miller's court. It didn't. We know he, he was he was actually appearing in court. He was conducting cases in court after the murder of Mary Kelly. At the end of November, he was dismissed from the school he was working at. And it was just after that that he committed suicide. So it would appear that it was something to do with his dismissal from the school that led to his suicide, not with him being jacked up and his mind giving way. Again, problem is we don't know what that what, what that something was, what happened. We don't know why he was dismissed. Uh, we can guess, but as I say, we don't we don't know. Uh, and it, it so he, he just went and committed. But there's all sorts of theory uh, reading into Montague John Druitt, and he he is a fascinating one. And as I say, up until Kosminski's name becoming well known and wide circulation, Druitt was probably at the top of the list for having been Jack the Ripper. I guess with Cutbush, I mean, he, you know, he had committed a, a, an act of violence, hadn't he? He'd, uh, he'd stabbed somebody, but he, he'd also been committed to Lambeth, I think, and then was eventually com committed to Broadmoor, where he passed away. But I mean, with Cutbush, again, it, it just seems as if you're, you're dipping your hand into the, uh, you know, in, in, into a box and picking out a name at random. There's so many potential people who could have been the Ripper. Yeah. I mean, Cutbush is interesting because Cutbush... Uh... His asylum records, uh, under the 100-year rule, his asylum records became available in, I think it was 2008. And if you read his asylum records, uh, he is, funnily enough, uh, Kosminski, as far as we know, wasn't homicidal uh, in the asylum. The, the only record of violence we have on Kosminski is he threw a chair in an attendant. That's about it <laughs> for Kosminski's violence. Cutbush is homicidal. He's threatening to rip people apart when he's in the asylum. He's, he, he wants to talk, kill people. Uh, one occasion, his mother goes to bid him goodnight uh, or goodbye, stoops over to kiss him, uh, and he tries to bite her nose off. I mean, yeah, so Cutbush is someone who... Uh, he, does, he doesn't get too much of a look in, really. Uh, he, I, I think he, he's, he's someone who's be quite interesting to investigate a lot further. Uh, but... Uh, yeah, but he was yeah he was he was stabbing young girls. Uh, when I say stabbing them, he would sort of walk up behind them and just jab them with, with a knife, uh, or at least that's what he was accused of. His solicitor and his family maintained that it, it was mistaken identity, that he hadn't done it, and that he had alibis on all on the nights, uh, on certainly on one of the nights when it happened. Uh, but as I say, it's uh, we, we'll never know now. 
the police got a bit of a raw deal from the press. And I mean, I put this cartoon up a little bit earlier, but I mean, the, <laughs> the, you know, the cartoon of the, the policeman being blindfolded just, I guess, sums up the fact that we had all of these potential, uh, you know, potential criminals who, who were being linked with with the crime but no actual conviction and i think there was actually a vigilante committee set up at one point in whitechapel because business owners were so sick and tired of the you know the fact that the police just hadn't caught this person yeah yeah it was uh it was it, it was vigilance uh in fact there were quite a few of the, the vigilance committees were set up the first one was the toynbee hall vigilance committee which was set up uh round about the uh, well in early september uh, so it was set up from toynbee hall and then there were a few others but the most famous one was the mile end uh vigilance committee which also referred to as the Whitechapel vigilance committee as well that's the one mr george lusk was the chairman of uh the vigilance committee uh it, it, what they set themselves up for was to actually supplement the police numbers uh, and uh, so they went out at night and they would patrol the streets and they would report suspicious characters to the police uh, the pro the problem was you had so many people out there trying to catch Jack the, or catch the Whitechapel murderer uh, that it was causing problems in their own right because they they follow each other uh, they'd say oh, they'd be in disguise so they'd be disguising as locals walking around and uh, another member of another vigilance committee might see them and think oh he looks suspicious so they'd start following him and then they'd find out they'd followed. Uh, that they were both vigilance committees policemen would then follow people and arrest people and then find out the members of the vigilance committees you had newspaper journalists in the area dressed up as in costumes some of them even dressed as women uh to try and get tempt jack the ripper to approach them uh so you had it was it's all the police though came under massive uh, uh real huge criticism largely because of their commissioner sir charles warren uh he was very very unpopular with the newspapers uh, well, with the radical newspapers, at least, because of uh, an event that had happened, the pre well, two events the previous year. One was the case of Miss Cass, who was a young girl who'd gone out to Regent Street on Jubilee night, 1887, to buy a pair of, well, she said, to buy a pair of gloves. And she was arrested by PC Endicott uh, for being a prostitute. And she went, uh, and he took her into, the, she said, I, I, I haven't done anything. He said, I saw you, you were, in, you were, you were soliciting men. And he took her to the police station and she appeared in court the next day before Mr. Newton. Now, there wasn't enough evidence. So Mr. Newton, the magistrate, dismissed her. But he said to her, if you are a respectable woman, you will not be seen out on Regent Street at 10 o'clock at night. Uh, and the liberal press went, and members of parliament went ballistic over this. They said, so you're saying that any woman who goes out on her own on Regent Street is a prostitute. And it caused a huge for her. And Sir Charles Warren then investigated it. Uh, he said, oh, I'm going to call an investigation because he was the police commissioner. So, But he acted as judge and jury in his own investigation. And that made him very unpopular with the newspapers. And then uh, on Sunday, the 13th of November, 1887, the, there'd been a, uh, a protest in Trafalgar Square, contrary to Charles Warren had banned protests. And he actually sent the police in to clear the square and, uh, and police on horseback went in. And it was carnage. It was it was an awful day, but it went down. It's still to this day known as Bloody Sunday. And um, that turned a lot of the radical newspapers against Sir Charles Warren. So by 1888, the press were desperate to have a... It's a bit like Cressida Dick at the moment. The, pre, the press are desperate to have a dig at Cressida Dick. Uh, and same with Sir Charles Warren. The press were just out to get him. And consequently, uh, when the Jack the River murders came, came along, it gave the press the perfect opportunity. So he and the Metron police got a really bad press and they didn't help themselves because they refused to share anything with the newspapers. Uh, the newspapers, uh, so the newspapers couldn't get any information out of the police. Uh, and so consequently, they sort of made things up and they kept attacking the police. Saying, well, if the police can't do it, they're incompetent. And that, that that's basically all that stuff like the, like the punch cartoon showing the blindfolded police officer. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating to go back through the records and just look at, at, at how the media operated in those days compared to now. And I've, I've got to say, it's, it's not much different. The cartoons no. are, are certainly very damning. Uh, and obviously the one I showed uh, slightly earlier there, which was, which was entitled The Nemesis of Neglect, um, which yeah. was in uh, Punch, was it magazine? Yeah, Punch, Punch Cartoon, yeah. 1888. Um, again, it just it just sums up the the time, the feeling, and very Dickensian, as you say, which is what attracted you to this particular story. Yeah, yeah, and that that image you got there—that's the uh, uh, the nemesis of neglect—was the one that uh, 
uh, funnily enough, that was drawn by, um, oh, I've just forgotten his name, <laughs> but he was the same illustrator who illustrated uh, Lewis Carroll's uh, Alice, Alice in Wonderland. Wow. Uh, and uh, he's, he's the same illustrator. And it was, uh, it, it really did sum up, uh, it's, it's, it's called uh, that There Floats a Phantom on the Nighttime Air. And it talks about this, uh, it's basically saying that what the murders have come out because Society's allowed the murder to develop. Every, everybody, a lot of people came to think that Jack the Ripper was something that was born from the slums because we'd let the slums develop so badly. We'd let people just grow up in squalor and without any civilized, civilizing factors. Uh, and so the belief was that this had then led to something coming out of those slums. And that something, as in that cartoon, was the nemesis and the glare. That's the phantom floating on the, on the, on the miasmic air of London. So your interest came from obviously from the you know the Dickensian stuff, the Charles Dickens stuff, and yeah, I mean, tell us why you, you decided to write your first book and what was your first book? My well, my very first book, uh, funnily enough, was a book on uh, it was done for a company in America called Frommers, and it was okay, it was twelve walking tours around London, uh, one of which was the East End of London, and then my next book was Walking Haunted London. Uh, which sold really well. That was 1997, and that sold really well. Uh, and then the, the, the publishers then commissioned me to do a series of ghost books, Haunted Britain, Haunted Britain and Ireland, Haunted Castles, Haunted Inns. Uh, so, uh, and they sold, Haunted Britain sold fantastically well. And uh, the publishers then said, oh, you know, what would you like to write about? And so I said, oh, I said, uh, I'd, I'd really love to do a book on Dickens. So I did a book called Walking Dickensian London. And then they came to me after that and they said, uh, would you like to do one on Jack the Ripper? And I said, oh, would I like to do one on Jack the Ripper? So I said, yeah. So I did Uncovering Jack the Ripper's London in 2000. Well, I wrote it in 2005. And uh, it was, it was, it, it was, it was, it was good because it gave me the opportunity to do something I'd always wanted to do. And that was write a book that concentrated on the area. Uh, on the story, no, not on who it was. I, I, I've never been really interested in, in solving the mystery, but on what what the crimes what the crimes exposed, uh, what it what insight it gives us into the area. Uh, so that was uncovering, and then Carlton approached me, I think two years later, and asked me if I'd do that uh, uh, Jack the Ripper the case book, uh, and and that was nice because they had uh, deep pockets, so they were able to get copies of all the documents. Uh, the letter, the, the police files, and there's little inserts in that book where you can actually take out the documents and read some of the police reports from the year and stuff like that. So, so that was nice to write. Yeah, fantastic, uh, and that's it. You get you get him, you know, you get embroiled in the story, I guess. And um, you know, going out and walking the streets of London now isn't quite the same, but I guess there are some places where you can go which are, you know, still the same. Uh, you know, tell us a little bit yeah. about the streets of the streets of Whitechapel. Yeah, there's some fantastic. I mean, that's what that the Edgar Guide is all about. Because I, uh, with, with Edgar, myself and my co-author Adam Wood, we felt that uh, you know everybody knows the little area around Commercial Street, and constantly one of the things you get with the tours because I, I, I do the Jack the Ripper tours as well, and you get people come back uh, who say, you know, I often read on things that say, well, there's no point doing it because nothing survives, and you think, well, it does. You just have to look for it. It's there if, if you look for it. So. Where the, I mean, with this, with this book, the first place we go to is Gunthorpe Street, which was called George Yard in 1888. And there's, an, there's a pub on the corner called the White Hart. And then you go through this arch and it's a cobblestone thoroughfare. And as you go into that arch, especially at night, you feel the 21st century slip away. And it, you, it's as though you're literally, got, you've gone through a time, a, a time portal. You've slipped back <laughs> and suddenly there's a building on your left that still was built in 1886. And that's up there on your left. And then we go to, for, for example, it takes you then down Brick Lane. And uh, there's places like there's a drinking fountain that was put there in 1860. So that would have been there at the time. There's a pub on the corner of Thrall Street called, it, well, it's a, an Indian restaurant. But if you look up, you'll see it's got two cross frying pans above it. It's the frying pan. That's the pub Mary Nichols was drinking in on the night she was murdered. Uh, it's not a pub anymore, and if you if it's not pointed out to you, you wouldn't see the two frying pans up on top because you just think, oh, it's an Indian restaurant. And then you go, and then you've got Ham 
a whole little knot of streets after that, Fournier Street, Princeton Street, Wilkes Street, and they are lined by houses. They're exactly as they were in 1888. And then uh, in, in the Edgar Guide, uh, there's... <laughs> Uh, the, there was a discovery for me that, that, that I did next. We went down, you go down Hanbury Street and there's a block, a, a modern block of council flats at the, as you get towards Spelman Street, uh, just off Hanbury Street. Uh, but behind that block of flats, I suddenly discovered there was a, it's called Albert and Victoria Cottages and they were built in the 1860s. And it's like, this, they're just tiny little cottages, but there's a whole two rows of them going right down that have survived. And they're just surrounded by modern council estates. You wouldn't even, I, I, I've been doing walks around there since 1982. And until lockdown, I didn't even know those cottages were there. I must, I must have seen them, but it just hadn't, maybe it hadn't sunk in. And they're amazing to discover. Uh, and then you go further down, you've got uh, Mary Nichols' murder site, which strangely enough, Mary Nichols' murder site now, uh, it's been a building site for the last five years but they've opened a, an exit from Whitechapel Station, which comes straight out onto the site. So people coming out of the station are stepping straight over the place where Mary Nichols' body was found. And uh, But next to that is the board school, which was there in 1880. It's the one building in the area that has survived, or in that vicinity that survived. And it looked down on the site of the murder. This is, it's, now, it's now flats, but it was a board school, and that's looking down on you. Then you've got the London Hospital. That's, that's survived. And then if you then go over to Burner Street, uh, and one of the murders I mentioned earlier was the Pynchon Street torso murder and the arch where the torso was found, that's still there and that's still quite creepy. Uh, and then just beyond it is St. George's Churchyard where you've got the mortuary that it, well, the Pynchon Street torso was taken to that mortuary, but also the body of Elizabeth Stride was taken to the mor that mortuary as well. And it's a rundown building. It, it, it looks like a, a tumble down shed in the churchyard but it's actually the mortuary to which uh, the two, two of the victims were taken. That's there in the yard. And then you come back towards the city and you've got, uh, I mean, Mitre Square has now been redeveloped, but you've still got, for example, in Goulston Street, you've still got the doorway where the chalked message was found on the wall. The Jews are the men that will not be blamed for nothing. Uh, and that's now, <laughs> it's now the wall of a restaurant, a fish and chip shop, actually, or fish and chip restaurant. But the wall's still there and they've got all these uh, so there's a lot of it still that's still there and you know and i always say i think we say it at the end of edgar that uh, you know there is a lot there you just have to know where to look are you surprised at people's fascination with this because i presume your tours are fully booked i know you know the similar tours in london for the craze and, and gangland tours mm. etc and are you surprised at people's fascination i am and i'm not i mean it, it, yeah, it does surprise me because it's something that people just become more and more fascinated in. Uh, it's it's it never seems to it, people people just I don't know what it is about it. There's, there's some it just fascinates people, and it, yeah. So I, it, I mean, as I said, I've been doing it since 1982, and uh, I've seen the opposite. Funnily enough, when I started, it wasn't it wasn't that pop. It, you know, it was popular, but it wasn't that popular. Uh, it really took off in the centenary year when the Michael Caine film came out. And then suddenly it just went from, I might take 30 round a night, and suddenly I was getting 200, 300 people a night <laughs> were turning up for it. And it's, uh, uh, so, so that, that, yeah, that, that was a surprise. But, um, yep, I, I always say, um, I, I, I can't knock it. Jack the Ripper bought my house. <laughs> Uh, 2015, I think it was. There, there was actually a, a museum opened specifically about Jack the Ripper yes, in yeah. the East End, and I mean that in itself tells you, you know, how popular you know he is as a as a as a figure, as somebody you know, yeah. somebody attracts people to a museum. I mean, I, you know, what what's a museum like? I've not been to it yet. I must go to it. Yeah, I've got to confess, I've not been to it either. I've heard mixed mixed views on it. Some people say, well, it's uh, you know, it's 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 not very big. It's in Cable Street. Uh, it's at the top of Cable Street. It's quite quite. I mean, the buildings, it, you know, they're nice old buildings around there. Uh, but so I can't. I mean, I've heard mixed 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 people have mixed feelings about it. Mm -hmm. uh, that, that I mean, it, it's got no connection, direct connection to the Jack the Ripper in there. Uh, but as I say, it's uh, it, it, it's. It's subjective. Some people, some people love it. Some people, uh, I mean, 
personally, I my my preference is, you know, if I'm going to look at the stuff, I want to look at the documents, go to the natural, uh, go to the archives at Kew, and look for the files, which you can still, which you can do. Anybody can do it. Uh, go go through the newspaper archives and just read read the reports. And some of the reports are so evocative it's as though you're there you know you're, you're it's like the rolling sky news today you think well i'm there i, I can just sense the fear because the journalists were all in the area interviewing people saying oh and they were standing with the crowds in the middle of the night as they are panicking okay oh and they're out interviewing people they're, they're they're talking to women and going well what do you think you know you could be murdered by jack the ripper and the women are saying well I, to be honest it's the ripper or the it's the ripper or the river for me uh, uh, and said, so let him come, let him come, I'll take it. <laughs> and it's just, it's, it's amazing. Just to, you're hearing the voices and that's the incredible thing. Yeah, I, of course it is. It, it, it's fascinating. I think, um, you know, th there's nothing that grips the, the public's imagination more. And, and, you know, because it's an unknown man, we don't know exactly who it was. That is, yeah. that is probably the, the, you know, the biggest attraction of it all. And, and probably why there's always so much um, speculation and new stories coming out uh, time and time again. And, and subsequently, uh, you know, Jack the Chipper Fish Shops opened up, which was like a bad taste, I think, in Greenwich. I think there was a lot of bad publicity and a few protests well, about that. There's actually that. one in Whitechapel. Yeah. I mean, uh, I was, so, so it's still going. Yeah. The, well, the, 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 the one that's got all the publicity is the Greenwich one. But there is one on the corner of uh, Osborne Street, just, just literally on Whitechapel High Street. Uh, I mean, they went the first. I mean, the first one uh, was Jack, Jack, Jack the Clipper, Jack the Clipper Barber Shop. Uh, and that, that's their site. I mean, their motto is L London born and bled. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> okay. Is there anything, I mean, obviously they have their own museum. Um, you haven't been to that, but say the, you know, the, the Scotland Yard, the, the infamous Black Museum there, is there, is there anything uh, left from, they, from, from the case apart from the letters? Got, yeah, they've got stuff like, uh, they've got photographs and one of the, I mean, they, they, they don't tend to concentrate that much on Jack the Ripper anymore. Uh, the Scotland, uh, I mean, that's actually closed at the moment. Uh, they, it's, all, it's all in storage because, mm -hmm. of course, the Met, they moved from, from the Victoria HQ back down to the embankment. Uh, so they're down in the embankment. Uh, what one place has a little bit on it is uh, the City of London Police Museum because uh, the City of London is a separate police from the Metropolitan Police and they have their own museum, which is in Guildhall. Uh, and they've got a little Catherine Eddowes, the, the uh, fourth victim, was murdered in Mitre Square, which is in the city of London. So the city police investigated her murder, not the Metropolitan Police. Uh, so there's an exhibit of hers in and, and uh, some of the letters were sent to the city police commissioner. So they're on display in there as well. Uh, so that, that's quite a nice one. Uh, of course, the London Dungeon was the first one. They, and they've got the big Jack the Ripper exhibit which shows the street you know you can walk through Hanbury Street to see the murders uh, let's get I mean it's uh, it, it's 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 quite it's, it's nicely done it's it's well done there yeah it's uh it's it's London Dungeon you know they 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 they, they know their target market and go straight for the jugular <laughs> in this case quite literally but it's I mean, with the advances of science and technology, you know, with, with some of the stuff, I mean, the letters, perhaps, is, you know, the envelopes that remain, is there any way that DNA could have been obtained and you could have found out who the Ripper was? Well, that, again, that's an interesting, because that's exactly what Patricia Cornwall did when she did her book on Walter Sickert being Jack the Ripper. Uh, she, start, uh, she started paying for DNA and stuff off the letters. The problem is that the murderer... And, and again, this this is where it gets so confusing, because Jack the Ripper was not the Whitechapel murderer. Jack the Ripper was the name given to the uh, the signature of the letter. Mm -hmm. So, consequently, technically speaking, Jack the Ripper never existed. Uh, it was the Whitechapel murderer. Uh, so, uh, and when that first letter signed Jack the Ripper came in, by October, they, the police had got over a thousand letters, many of them signed Jack the Ripper. Uh, so. What Patricia Cornwall did was, yes, I'm going, I'm going to do DNA analysis. Oh, we'll, 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 we'll do DNA on there. Problem with doing DNA is, A, time has passed, so the DNA will have degraded. Secondly, the letters have been handled by so many people. I mean, over the years, they've been handled by so many different people that, again, it's going to have uh, uh, degraded the DNA. Uh, and thirdly, even if we do get a piece of DNA, it's, ah, we... We'd simply knew who wrote a letter. We wouldn't know 
who Jack the Ripper was or who the murderer was uh, because they were probably completely different people. Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, of course, decades later, we have, you know, a copycat. We have Peter Sutcliffe, who was eventually yeah. charged and, and found guilty of being the Yorkshire Ripper. And uh, almost eerily, George Humble, years later, was convicted, of course, of um, a letter, which, you know, yeah. again, it's just that just that coincidence or was it, you know, was it, was it his idea of a, a prank that went wrong? Uh, you know, but it, it was... It was very similar, wasn't it? And, you know, the, yeah, the yeah. tape, we, we had that extra bit of technology then. We had a tape recording. And yeah. I remember I was a young kid growing up. I'm Jack. And this is when your fascination really had started and you were you were getting right into it. I mean, did you did you look at that in amazement at the time? No. I, funnily enough, because I, 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 I initially, uh, I come from Stoke-on-Trent, so I'm from the Midlands. Uh, and I can remember that, the Orchard Ripper period. My, my sister was up in, uh, she was a nurse at the time, or she was training as a nurse at the time, but she was up in Manchester. And uh, I can remember the, 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 the terror that she said going out on, you know, that she wouldn't go out. People were, you know, going past the people, ter terrified to go out. And you, I can remember watching on TV and everyone was like, streets were like ghost towns. People wouldn't go out on the streets. And the, uh, the I'm Jack, uh, the tape, I can remember I was where uh, I'd come down when he was caught. I'd come down to London and I was working in an office in London. And I can remember, and, it, and it, again, it just shows you, you can actually see the main mentality behind this, actually, uh, behind, probably behind the letter writers from, from that is that uh, I think it was, it was, I can't remember who did it. I think maybe it was the police. They put the letter, did the recording, and you could phone the hotline and listen to the voice. That's right. Uh, and I'm Jack. And, and I can remember those guys in the office were, would, <laughs> they dial the number and then, trans and then transfer the call to one of the secretaries. So she said, I've got a call for you. And then she'd pick the phone up and, go, and they'd hear, I'm Jack. It's, it's almost like it was a joke, just like the Jack the Ripper letters were, where again, it, uh, it'd be, as I say, it's, it, I don't know if it's how people react or whatever, but it, it was just, it was very, 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 it was a bizarre period. And of course, then it turned out that that was the red herring. It had thrown the police off on completely the wrong trail. And it's probably the same with the letter as well. But the letter probably sent the police uh, or, or gave the public, uh, in the public's mind, gave us the impression that Jack Ripper was educated when he probably wasn't. He was probably someone living in the area. But it's again, it's that red herring. Uh, you've got the police, uh, police red herring, uh, and it just goes. The investigation just goes the wrong way. And of course, Peter Sutcliffe was, was caught not with all the detective work, a good, good old-fashioned police gut instinct. Yeah, and uh, just a, a little side note to that for those of you who are watching me podcast for the first time, I actually had an encounter with Peter Sutcliffe myself, but it was in Broadway on a visit to Ronnie Cray. Uh, yes, he actually knocked me chair on a visit um, when I was sitting visiting Ronnie Cray in Broadmoor, and uh, he he walked in and 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 clipped the back of my chair. I turned round to see who it was. And when I turned back, Ronnie Cray was going red in the face and seething with anger that he hadn't apologised and uh, had to be calmed down on the actual visit. So quite a fascinating story, that. But, yeah, yeah. I did see Sutcliffe again on another visit, but he wasn't sitting anywhere near us at Ron's instruction. But, uh, yeah, yeah, very, uh, very, you know, very instantly recognisable, jet black hair at the time, um, you know, very vacant look and... Uh, very little conversation with a woman who was visiting from South Shields, uh, similar similar area to me, only 10 miles away from where I live. So, uh, yes, my encounter with Peter Sutcliffe was brief, uh, and I'm lucky to say that I survived to tell the tale, Richard. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, before we finish and give your books uh, a last plug, I guess the million-dollar question is, who does Richard Jones think was Jack? The who do I... Who, who, my honest answer would have to be, I haven't got the foggiest idea, but I, 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 I fall down on, I, I, there's two I would say. I think the likeliest one of them all is Kosminski. Of, of all the names of Pitford, I think Kosminski has to be the, he, he was the favoured suspect of the two highest ranking officers on the case. They knew all the evidence, and if they thought the evidence against him was better than the evidence against any other suspect. He's got to be up there on the list of suspects. Uh, only problem, as I say, is unless I can see the evidence, I can't say 100% that it was. But I think Kosminski probably. But I'm, I'm still of the opinion that Cutbush should be looked into a lot more.
I think Cutbush is neglected, uh, and Thomas Cutbush is worth worth exploring because I think there's there the, the might there might there might be stuff there. There might not. It might just all fall down. But he doesn't tend to get a look in. But I think of them all. Yeah, they're they're, they're the two. But then again. I also have the belief that it could be just a nobody who lived in the area. It's somebody who everybody looked at and thought, you know, someone like Sutcliffe, who's <laughs> just so ordinary. <laughs> and when he's brought to justice, if he had been brought to justice, probably everyone would go, no, 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 no. Not he. he was very quiet. But, you know, he was just one of us. <laughs> because that's the danger of these people. They are just one of us. And that's why people aren't threatened by them. And if you think about it, the victims weren't threatened by him either because they went with him to those dark corners of dark, dark places where they knew they couldn't be protected. Uh, so he wouldn't have been an, a, a, an absolute nutter, uh, madman. He would have been, in some ways, somebody who went with them and then, uh, and then committed the murders. And by yeah, the that's... time they realised what he was, it was too late. Very true, yeah. That just it made me remember that infamous uh, front page of The Sun when Fred West was arrested. Um, standing in his cellar with his hard hat on and his hammer. And I think his neighbour had said, I always used to go next door and have a cup of tea. He was a lovely fella, but it's exactly the same. You know, Fred West yeah. was, you know, a serial killer. And, you know, yeah. he's the most unlikely person at that time to be to be thought of. So, yeah, you're right. Um, great stuff. I could talk to you all night, Richard, and I'm certainly going to book up on your show, um, your, your walk, sorry, on, on your walk around. I think that would be great to come down. Jamie recommends it. So I will certainly do that. You've got a lot of books available on Amazon. So if people just go on to Amazon and look for Richard Jones's name, you will be able to find him on there. I will put a couple of links down in the description box. This is the most recent one. Uh, Edgar's Walking Guides, uh, Jack the Ripper's East End with Richard Jones and Adam Wood. Absolutely fascinating speaking to you. Uh, look forward to to you. Looking forward to meeting you in the future and uh, best of luck with everything you do. Take care, Richard. And with you as well. Thank you very much. Have a great Bye -bye. evening. Bye-bye.